And uh, good morning again, Hellas Church. I forgot to say this earlier. My name is Keith Ferguson. I'm one of the pastors who serves here in West Seattle. Um, let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 15 in that same text that our sister Abby read just a moment ago. Before we jump in, we'll pray here in just a moment, one more time. I want to ask you to begin reflecting on the matter of acceptance. Now, this is a huge buzzword in our culture. Um, you know, I say the word acceptance, it probably means it may be a little bit uh, different to each of you. But it's something that's fundamental to who we are. It's something essential to who we are as people when you look at the way uh, humanity is described throughout the Bible, tracking all the way to the beginning in Genesis when it says that we are made in his image. Well, if you imagine that there is this triune God of Father and Son and Holy Spirit who exists perfectly in community with himself and then creates man and woman in his image, it, it's fair to say that there is some kind of longing to be in the midst of community as well. There is this inherent longing to be accepted by another person. And chiefly, in the end, that greatest desire for acceptance lies with God. I want you to think about the, the experience of acceptance in your life. For some of you, this may be a really positive thing. This may be a really happy thing to think on. You know, maybe tracking all the way back to your parents, you can remember just time after time when you have had a positive experience of being accepted. But for many of us, and I would say even for those whose experience is largely positive, everyone has those experiences where they felt the pain of rejection. When someone saw who you were, you felt the pain of being told whether directly or indirectly you are unacceptable. I want you to think about the cost of acceptance. You know, I am not there yet. My, I have four kids and the oldest is nine. Um, and so, you know, eventually we'll get to the teenage years. But I've, I've heard all of these stories um, of parents who have so deeply loved their kids through every season of life, and including those, uh, what's typically known as those rebellious teenage years, or maybe it waits till college and their kids fall off the deep end, or maybe it goes a little bit later in life, and for some reason or another, a child just starts making poor decisions and destroying themselves. But that child always wants to know that it can go back he or she can go back to his or her parents and know that they're still loved and accepted despite all this garbage and baggage that they're carrying around. But think how costly that is. I have met parents who've wept over their, parent, over their kids and the cost of acceptance. Think about the costliness of acceptance in your life, maybe back to when you were a youth. Maybe you didn't have a positive experience with parents. You felt the sting of rejection early on. Think about the costliness in your life. Maybe there's wounds or scars, baggage that you carry to this very day because what most likely happened anytime you experienced that rejection, being people who naturally need it and crave it, we went somewhere else for it. And the cost was paid in one way or another. For some of you, the cost was... You did the thing you thought you would never do. 
so that that person or that group would accept you. Maybe you did the thing that you said you would never do again or you embraced the body of beliefs or you embraced the philosophy or the lifestyle that you said you would never do again. Those are the costs that we pay for this craving to be accepted. Now what that has to do with the cross is of utmost importance. Let me pray for us one more time and we'll jump into our text. Lord, we thank you for the cross of Jesus. We thank you that that is, for those who are in Christ, that is our primary identity right now. I pray, God, that you would give us the strength to walk through your scriptures, give us the wisdom um, to understand them, the tenderness of heart to receive them, God, maybe even just the energy to stay awake. Help us to receive from you, and I ask, as always, God, that you would strengthen me to do what is beyond my own capability, and that you would allow me the joy of seeing your word work in the midst of your people, and all of us the joy of being reminded that we can be accepted. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So we've been in the Gospel of Mark for several months. Next week, we wrap it up. And this is the penultimate moment in the entire Gospel. It begins in Mark chapter 1, verse 1. It says, this is the Gospel of Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. And now we have tracked all the way through the stories, through the miracles, through the teachings, through the early moments of rejection. And now we are at the final moment. The crowds have shouted crucify him and now Jesus is on his way to be crucified. What we're going to find out in our text this morning is that Jesus was rejected to the uttermost. We'll understand in a little bit what that means but for us to be accepted Jesus first had to be rejected to the uttermost. Completely and utterly rejected and despised. But there's something we begin to pick up early on in our text, and it, and it comes in this brief uh, few verses as Jesus is physically on his way to the cross. Now, a Roman cross in the first century would look a little bit something like this. Now, this little crossbar piece here was likely a little bit higher, um, and the crossbar piece weighed about 30 or 40 pounds. And typically what happened is the one who was going to be crucified had to carry that crossbar piece uh, from the point of trial outside the city to Golgotha, the, the Skull Hill. Now, obviously Jesus is pretty worn out at this point. He's been up for who knows how many hours. He's been emotionally drained. He's been physically drained. And of course, he's been whipped. He's been beaten. He's wearing a crown of thorns. He's already starting to bleed profusely. Energy is already slipping. So he's having problems getting actually outside the city to the cross. And that's why it mentions that Simon of Cyrene is pulled in. And, and then uh, he's going to help him get there. In verse 22, they bring him to Golgotha. In verse 23, there's this little comment. It says that they tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh. And he did not take it. Now, this was commonly seen as an act of compassion now, there's, there's not a lot of agreement about who was typically the party that would do this, 
but it was widely agreed that this was an act of compassion because the way that wine interacted with myrrh, it created some kind of painkiller. Now, at this point in time in history, the Romans didn't create crucifixion, but they did perfect it. And so it doesn't matter how much of a painkiller you get, crucifixion is an excruciating experience. In fact, that word is, we get that word from the cross. It is an excruciating experience. Jesus knew it going into it. Nevertheless, there's this act of compassion that is offered to anyone who's on their way to Skull Hill to be crucified. And Jesus rejects it. Now, why would Mark go out of his way to say that? There's a lot of things that are written about Jesus' suffering. And that one of the things that can be lost in the midst of it is the fact that he did it willingly. I know we can say that conceptually, but we all have problems with this. We all have problems with the idea of begrudging love. We've all had experiences in the past where people have said they've wanted to take care of us or people have maybe outright said that they love us or that they have some kind of concern for us, but you can just see it in their faces. And we've each maybe been guilty of this. You can see it in their faces that their care or their love or their concern or whatever it is, it's begrudging. They don't really feel what they're saying. And that doesn't feel very good, does it? It doesn't feel very good to know that people have to work and have to work up the effort to actually care about you. And when it comes to God, we do, the, we do this. We say, John three sixteen, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. And we say, yes, God, you love the whole world. That's so exciting. But when God wants to tell you and me specifically that he loves us, we all of a sudden have problems with that, don't we? We start to have problems. We wait and wait, okay. I mean, God, I know you love the world, but you want to love me. When God wants to get really specific and love you specifically, we're so conditioned, it feels like, to being loved in a begrudging way or there's some kind of exchange that has to take place for us to receive love. Sometimes it just matters point out that Jesus did this willingly. That when Jesus fell down, perhaps, because he just could not move any further with that cross piece that weighed 30 or 40 pounds, he wasn't thinking, just stay down, maybe they'll forget I'm here. He was thinking, how can I get up and keep going to where I have to go? He wanted to do this. He thought of you, he thought of me. He wanted to do this. No one had a spear in his back. No proverbial gun to his head. And it wasn't just a willing rejection that Jesus would experience. It was a comprehensive rejection. We see it backing up earlier into chapter 15 where you, you know, we've already seen the disciples split. We see uh, these government leaders starting to come against Jesus. We see soldiers mocking Jesus. We see crowds mocking Jesus. We see religious leaders mocking Jesus, men, women, everything. Comprehensively. Now, when I say comprehensively, it doesn't negate the fact that 
specific people are mentioned in a positive light. We won't get there this morning, but when you get down to verse 40 and later on into chapter 16, you're going to see a particular group of ladies mentioned in a positive light. You're going to see Joseph of Arimathea mentioned in a positive light. If you were to turn over to Luke, uh, sorry, to Luke's account of the crucifixion, you will see one of the robbers eventually, even though they were both hurling abuse and rejection at Jesus, one of them would publicly turn and repent and ask Jesus, please remember me when you come into your kingdom. It doesn't negate those positive mentions at all. And so what I mean when I say Jesus was comprehensively rejected, it means there's not a single area or corner of society that is safe from his piercing words such that it would provoke rejection in our hearts. In our culture, we loved to cast stones. I, I'm amazed at what social media can accomplish and I am terrified at what social media can accomplish. Never have we, I feel like we have per perfected the witch trial over social media. And we have this audacity and this arrogance to believe that, that we're in a safe place. I'm poor and the rich are evil, therefore I'm in a safe place. Or I'm rich and the poor are evil, therefore I'm in a safe place. Or I'm black or I'm white or I'm whatever color of the crayon box, therefore I'm in a safe place. But those other people over there, they're the evil ones. But when you look at the narrative of the scriptures, Jesus is comprehensively rejected by men, by women, by young, by old, by those who were pro-government, by those who hated the government. He was rejected by the religious. He was rejected by the irreligious, by rich, by poor. He was rejected from literally every corner of society. And that includes today. There's no place... There's no socioeconomic status. There's no position in life. There's no season of life where any one of us is safe from the all-seeing, the all-knowing, the all-heart-piercing and convicting words of Jesus such that it provokes within us rejection of the Christ. Which is why the scriptures say that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, that there is no one righteous, not even one. No one can hide. And that's why everybody is rejecting him. That's why every one of us at some point in time has rejected him, even as Christians with our attitudes or our words, spewing our venom at God in our prayers, we have decreed our rejections over and over again, haven't we? Jesus comprehensively rejected to the uttermost. But it wasn't a surprise. Knew this was going to happen. Jesus has been saying this was going to happen because why? It's according to the scriptures. What happened in the garden after Jesus is agonizing in prayer? This cohort of people, maybe cohort's not the right word, just this kind of bunch of people come up and they arrest Jesus. What does he say? He says, I've been teaching in the temple openly, freely. You had every opportunity to come up to me and to arrest me. But right now you're coming in the middle of the night like I'm a criminal and you're arresting me here and now and why? Because it was written to be so. 
that all of this that is taking place is happening according to the predetermined plan and will of God. Now, what's interesting about this is Jesus was so cruelly and unjustly treated. Now, there's a reason why he was placed the way he was. A Roman cross, if this crossbar were a little higher, a Roman cross typically may not have been too much higher than this. All they needed to... uh, to engage in this, uh, to help the person to start the process of suffocation hanging on a cross was for their feet to be elevated just enough off the ground where they can't reach. But somehow, they decide to place Jesus right in the middle between two criminals, and they elevate him up enough that eventually, to reach his mouth, they have to put a sponge on a stick and reach up high. So Jesus is placed in between two criminals. He's raised up higher than everybody else. And in first century Rome, that was a public statement of guilt. Almost as if to say, this is, if there are three criminals up, Jesus in the middle is the criminal par excellence. And then they put the sign, King of the Jews, over his head as a mockery. It's a legitimate crime against the Roman government to declare yourself to be a king. It's the equivalent of treason, so they put that up, but how mocking is that to do that over a man who's dying? And yet, what have we insisted and what have we seen about Jesus this entire journey through the gospel of Mark, that he is completely blameless, he's sinless, he's pure, he's been entirely self-giving in every single way. And he, we have to be careful about using superlatives, but this is a safe one to say that Jesus suffered the most um, unjust death in history because there would never be anyone more innocent than him and who would be counted more guilty than him. And yet in all of it, does Jesus ever seem out of control? Does Jesus ever seem like he's being forced to do anything? Does Jesus ever, when you read the gospel accounts, does it ever really look like he's a victim? No, because he's the author of all of it. It's happening all according to plan, all according to the scriptures, such that there's darkness You can find those types of mentions about darkness from verse 33. You can find that in Amos chapter 8, verse 9. These mentions about them dividing up his clothes and playing basically this gambling game to see who takes what. You can find that in Psalm chapter 22, as well as other parts about people uh, mocking and deriding him. If you look in the Gospel of Matthew, people actually use words from Psalm 22 to make fun of Jesus. When Jesus cries out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, it's from Psalm 22, everything is happening exactly how it's supposed to. And I would even say, and includes the part that follows Jesus' cry from the cross. When he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? People begin to take notice. They're like, oh, look, he's calling for Elijah. And someone's going to go and, and get some sour wine and put it on a sponge and a stick and give it to him to drink. Now, what's interesting about this is we kind of have two ways we can view this. The people who 
are compassionate towards Jesus, as far as we can tell from verse 40, are actually standing at a distance. And everyone who is close by are those who are mocking Jesus. So we have two ways to look at this. When, when they're saying, oh, look, he's calling for Elijah. Let's give him some sour wine. Let's see if Elijah comes and takes care of Jesus. They're either, they've all of a sudden grown a conscience and they're feeling very compassionate towards Jesus or something else is happening. And if you're asking my opinion, I believe it's the latter. Because remember, Elijah was supposed to be the forerunner for the Christ. He was supposed to be the one who was to help. It was an Elijah-like figure. And Jesus said this was John the Baptist who would eventually be killed, but John the Baptist was one who proclaimed the coming of the Messiah, prepared the way for his ministry. He was a type of helper for Messiah. And here, Messiah is hanging on a cross, and they're like, oh, look, he's calling out for his helper. Let's see what happens. It's more mocking, but it gets worse. We're going to talk about toilets for a little bit. You see, in those days... First century Roman Empire, which is when this took place, and it's also the audience, the first audience of this gospel account when it was written down and circulated among churches, first century Roman Empire. Public toilet, four walls, three of those walls, about two feet up, there would be long marble benches on three walls, and there would be a hole maybe every foot and a half, two feet. A bunch of people crowd in there, go to the bathroom, one big party, right? That's weird. So in those days, they don't have Charmin, do they? And they don't have those really awkward Charmin commercials with the cartoon teddy bears snuggling trees and stuff. That's really weird, right? They don't have that stuff, right? What do they have? Guess what they have? They have a sponge on a stick. It's historical archaeological fact. In first century Roman Empire, one of the ways that they cleaned themselves was a sponge on a stick. And there were even professionals who would go into these places and that was the way they made money. They would share the love, so to speak, and help people out. One of the ways that they would clean their sponge on a stick, guess what it was? Sour wine. Now, whether or not that is exactly what is happening here when they take a sponge on a stick and put it in sour wine and stick it up to Jesus' mouth is kind of beside the point. We can't really say. But the symbolism here is incredibly profound. Because what's taking place, all the darkness that comes, I mean, this is time of Passover when there would be a full moon and so there can't be an eclipse and so there's some kind of supernatural darkness taking place at this moment in history. It's happening for three hours. And then all of, a sudden, all of a sudden, Jesus is crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which is strange because in all of the recorded prayers of Jesus, he never looks up and refers to him as God, he says, Father, every time except this one. And then all of a sudden, they're sticking this sponge on a stick that was dipped in a jar of sour wine to his mouth. 
that would be the typical place where people were cleaning themselves after going to the bathroom. Something is happening here. Jesus rejected to the uttermost happened as the embodiment of human defilement. And think about how profound this is. We're talking about the Son of God. When you look at Colossians, when you look at Hebrews, it says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He is the exact representation of his nature. Jesus is the very embodiment of everything that God is, including his nature right in front of us. And now in front of us, he is the embodiment of human defilement. You can never go so high and drop so low as what Jesus experienced. In fact, I think a scripture that perfectly describes what is happening on the cross we find in 2 Corinthians 5.21. I think it'll be up here on the screen or it's on your handout. He, God, made him Jesus who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. This is how acceptance happened. When Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I think the only way we can say that is that God, for the first and last time, the Father rejected the Son. We have this terrifying fear, don't we? It's like, maybe not physically, but we're just walking through life, and it's like we're, we're holding on to people, you know? We got those people close to us, and one of the things that we are most afraid of is they're gonna find out who we are. You know, we know who we are. Those things that we think about, things we struggle with, things that we have done, maybe we've never told anybody things we've thought about doing. Yeah, if anybody finds out, they're gone. Some of us have experienced that. Again, that feeling of once they find out enough about us that we will be deemed unacceptable, they let go and they're gone. And we are especially terrified of that from God. That if I do take that risk, if I do go to God, if I do give him my garbage, what is he gonna do Like, if I keep on sinning, if I keep on struggling, if I, if I keep on having these issues and I can't get my crap together, what is God going to do when he keeps finding out as if he's finding out new things? Is he going to let go? We are terrified of this, aren't we? But get what happened. See, on the cross, Jesus experienced this, his entire earthly ministry with the Father. Completely unbroken, unhindered, perfect, united fellowship with his Father. And on the cross, what happens? I wanna read something to you that describes the rejection of Jesus by God the Father. 
when we say that Jesus bore our sins on the cross, sometimes when we speak in generalities, it's really easy to just let it float away. And so I'm gonna read you something. It's very detailed, and honestly, it's disturbing. But I think this is the type of thing we need to realize. It took place when Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's from excerpts from a book called When God Weeps. The face that Moses had begged to see, that was forbidden to see, was slapped bloody. The thorns that God had sent to curse the earth's rebellion now twisted around his brow. His back, buttocks, and the rear of his legs felt the whip, and soon they looked like the plowed fields of Judah outside the city. By the time the spitting is through, more saliva perhaps is on him than in him. No longer can he be recognized. Up Skull Hill now to the welcome of other poorly paid legionnaires enjoying themselves. One raises a mallet to sink in the spike, but the soldier's heart must continue pumping as he readies the prisoner's wrist. Someone must sustain the soldier's life minute by minute, for no man has this power on his own. Who supplies breath to his lungs? Who gives energy to his cells? Who holds his molecules together? You see, Colossians tells us that only by the sun do all things hold together. The victim wills that the soldier live on. He grants the warrior's continued existence and the man swings. And as he swings, the son recalls how he and the father first designed the medial nerve of the human forearm, the sensations it would be capable of and the design proves flawless and the nerve performs exquisitely. They lift the cross and God is on display in his underwear and can scarcely breathe. But these pains are a mere warm-up to his other and growing dread. He begins to feel a foreign sensation. Somewhere during this day, an unearthly foul odor begins to waft, not around his nose, but around his heart. He feels dirty. Human wickedness starts to crawl up his spotless being, the living excrement from our souls. The apple of his father's eye turns brown with rot. His father, he has to face his father like this. From heaven, the father now rouses himself like a lion, disturbed, shaking his mane and roars against the shriveling remnant of a man hanging on a cross. Never has the son seen his father look at him like this. Never felt even the least of his hot breath, but the roar shakes the unseen world and darkens the visible sky. The sun does not recognize these eyes. Son of man, why have you behaved so? You have cheated, lusted, stolen, gossiped, murdered, envied, hated, lied. You have cursed robbed, overspent, overeaten, fornicated, disobeyed, embezzled, and blasphemed. 
Oh, the duties you have shirked, the children you have abandoned. Who has ever so ignored the poor, so played the coward, and so belittled my name? Have you ever held your razor tongue? What a self-righteous, pitiful drunk. You who molest young boys, peddle killer drugs, travel in cliques, and mock your parents. Who gave you the boldness to rig elections, formant revolutions, torture animals, and worship demons? Does the list never end, son of man? Splitting families, raping virgins, acting smugly and playing the pimp, buying politicians, practicing extortion, filming pornography, and accepting bribes. You've burned down buildings. You have perfected terrorist attacks founded false religions and traded in slaves, relishing each morsel and bragging about it all. I hate, I loathe these things in you. Disgust, for everything about you consumes me. Can you not feel my wrath? Of course, the son is innocent. He is blamelessness in itself. Father knows this, but the divine pair have an agreement. And the unthinkable must now take place. Jesus will be treated as if personally responsible for every sin ever committed. The Father watches as his heart's treasure, the mirror image of himself, sinks drowning into raw, liquid sin. His stored rage against humankind from every century explodes in a single direction. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But heaven stops its ears. The sun stares up at the one who cannot and who will not reach down or reply. The Trinity had planned it, and the sun endured it, The Spirit enabled it. The Father rejected the Son whom he loved. Jesus, the God-man from Nazareth, perished. The Father accepted his sacrifice for sin and was satisfied, and the rescue was accomplished. This is where acceptance comes from. This is why those who look to the Son, who was rejected, to the uttermost, can now be accepted to the uttermost. Jesus, verse 37, would utter a loud cry and breathe his last. And the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Guys, Those enduring crucifixion do not scream before they die. They suffer long, they suffer hard, and they slowly slip away into exhaustion and unconsciousness and eventually death. They do not scream. It says in another gospel account that shortly before this, Jesus would say these words, it is finished. So this was not a scream of defeat or of despair. This was a scream of victory. Because Jesus killed every sin on the cross. He experienced all of that rejection that we should and would have experienced. He experienced it himself. Because he died for sinners. 
And when it talks about this veil in the temple being torn from top to bottom, torn in two, that's, that's an irreversible act. It's a complete and irreversible act. And, and there's two curtains that were in the temple that this might be referring to. And honestly, it doesn't really matter which one it was because they say the same thing. Either it was this more, uh, either it was this outer, more public curtain that hung and that a lot of people could see. And if that were torn, that would have been a symbol of what Jesus was already saying. And that was, don't put your hope in this building I am the true temple. If you want to worship God, if you want to know God, if you want to approach God, don't hope in this building, hope in me. I am the true temple. And so that's what that curtain would communicate. Or there's this other curtain in the very innermost part of the temple. It's called the Holy of Holies. And just outside, there would be a curtain. This was the holiest spot on planet Earth for the Jews. This would be the place where God said he would put his presence to be with his people and only one person one time a year could enter into that room and that was to make sacrifice for the people and to shield off people from the glory of that room. There was a curtain and if it was that curtain that was torn, then that means this access to God, this place, so to speak, where God's presence would be is now unhindered and unabated for anyone who wants to approach. So it doesn't matter which one. The point is this, that you and I can now come to God. That all of those hangups that you feel in your heart about God's willingness to accept you, even if you are already a Christian, that those have been dealt with because Jesus died for sinners. And notice the result of this. Verse 39. A centurion who's standing there. This is a guy who's seen his share of crucifixions. He's standing there and what is his response to this? Truly this was the Son of God. When you consider all the confusion about who Jesus is, when you consider all the confusion about who Jesus was as we've read through this gospel account, this is staggering. The only three people or groups who had a clear picture of who Jesus was. Jesus himself, God the Father, and demons. Everyone else, and as convinced as John the Baptist was, even he had a moment in prison when he felt a wavering. Everyone else was shaky in their understanding. What does it really mean that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God? Even today, we have lots of misconceptions. Just like the people of that day were no different. We have these little images in our head. This is the Jesus created in my image. And as long as he stays just like this, I'm cool. I'm comfortable with Jesus. We're good. But what do we say? Jesus' word pierces every single nook and cranny of culture, the world, and our hearts. And out of all of this confusion, out of all of this misunderstanding, it is not until he is crucified for sins that some pagan Roman who is paid to kill people says, this was the Son of God. The only way the people around us 
are going to understand who Jesus is if we, pres- if we present him as Christ crucified for sins. Then he will be declared son of God by those around us. There's a lot of substitutes we can make, I assure you. And there are times there's a lot of substitutes we do make. But when he is presented as Christ crucified for sins, then people will declare him the son of God, people you never thought would declare him as such. That some pagan executioner, perhaps more than anybody in the entire gospel of Mark so far, was starting to get it. This issue of acceptance is huge. In fact, it's everything to us. Some of us have made massive life decisions based on this idea of acceptance. Some of us have changed the entire trajectory of our lives based on a single decision that revolved around the issue of acceptance. Some of us have reaped incredible harm and pain and damage in our lives revolving around this issue of acceptance because we have to find some place where somebody knows us as we are and they're still gonna love us and they're not gonna leave us. My friends, the only place, the beginning place where you will find that is Jesus, the Son of God. And from there, when you get a whole bunch of us together who have come under this Jesus, Son of God, who have experienced an acceptance like no other, by the grace of God, we'll start doing that to each other, won't we? We're gonna enter into a time of response now where our worship leader, Carolyn, will come and lead us in some more music. We can stand and lift our hands in praise and gratitude. We can just stand in silence and prayerful meditation of what we've heard. You're invited to come kneel down and pray if you want. I wouldn't go over here. There's gonna be some people coming by. But you know, if, if you feel responded to sacrificial generosity after seeing this demonstration of sacrificial generosity, and we have a box in the back you can give your gifts. And, but one of the things that we do every week is we invite you to participate in this table where we remember the body and the blood of Jesus given so that we might be accepted. He was rejected so that we might be accepted. And every week, we need these reminders because we, we go back in the default mode where we, we gotta try to earn it. We gotta try to make it worth God's while, right? We need this reminder every week. And as it pertains to acceptance, I wanna encourage you to do something. Before you come up to this table, I want you to think about something specific. When you try to approach God, typically in every person, there's something that makes you feel like that's hindered. Something that makes you feel like God can't love you like the Bible says it does, like he does. Something that if you're not a Christian in this room, something that may have been keeping you from following Jesus for the past 20, 30, 60, 70 years. I want you to think about that. And I want you to be willing to come to this table. You can even symbolically do it, tear out a piece of paper and write it down. And come to this table and believe that you can be accepted because he was rejected. And if you want, take that piece of paper and throw it in the trash. In a moment, I invite you to come.
Lord, we thank you for your love. We thank you for the astronomical price that was paid to secure our acceptance. Lord, this is heavy stuff. And I pray that it stays as heavy as it needs to be for as long as it needs to be. But Lord, I pray because you didn't stay dead, Jesus. I pray that you would turn our weeping and our mourning into dancing. That you would have breakthroughs this morning in people's hearts, allowing them to experience your love in a new and a profound way, perhaps to, to an extent that they have never experienced before. I pray that people in this room who do not know you will come to you for the first time. God, turn the grief of the cross into our joy. Lord, thank you that you love us. God, thank you that you accept us. Help us to receive that from you. Help me to receive that from you. And thank you, Jesus, for being willing to be rejected because, so that we might be accepted. This is about you, Lord. We love you and we thank you. Amen.